Now let us turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and you can do it quite easily by looking at the end of the bulletin where it's printed. It's the New American Standard Version, and they very pleasantly and sweetly agreed to put that in the bulletin so we would have it there in front of us over against what the Bibles that we usually read. So uh, we can thank uh, Jordan for his kindness there. All right, let us listen to God's holy and precious and fallible word as it's found here in Luke 10, 27 to 39. And the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to, to an end and took, took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. What do we know about God's word? And the fire falls. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts will be acceptable. In your sight, O Lord, our Redeemer, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Let me begin by saying I have some, something of a rashy voice, so if you'll forgive me, I'm just a rashy old man. No, if you would please think a rashy young man is here preaching to you. I'm not sure what happened to my throat. But secondly, I want to ask uh, forgiveness for repeating something that Jordan has so uh, well done, and that is to set the context for this passage. Uh, the context of this passage begins in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Let me add a little note to this. 
And I think it's an important note for all of us with reference to what's going to happen with the sermons that follow and with the sermons that Jordan has already preached. Jesus' ministry began in Judea, and it began in obscurity, so to speak. And little by little, over a year of a hundred, or over one year or so, all of a sudden it came to a point of some popularity. And during the next two years, he was, Jesus was primarily in Galilee. He went to Jerusalem now and then, but he was primarily in Galilee uh, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And it came up to the point, the, cha- the turning point was Peter's confession. We're following Peter's confession. Jesus turned to them and they sa- he said, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer many things from the Gentiles and the, and the Jews and the like. And he will, be, he will be killed and on the third day rise again. And then we come to the next major statement, which is he set his face to Jerusalem. No longer to be in Galilee. Why would he set his face to Jerusalem? You know why. And I know why in order that what he said there to the disciples might remain. And what he said to the disciples is an underlying theme throughout Luke, the latter part of Luke, from Luke 9.51 to 19.27. Commentators call that the travel narrative. 9.51 to 19.27, the travel narrative. But there's something more here before we even get started. We notice in John chapters 10... And, and 11, that at least in that situation, he already was in Jerusalem, and that was only three years, or, or I'm sorry, I'm getting mixed up here as an old man, three, three months prior to his death, which means that he got to Jerusalem and came back to wherever he was. He was in and out of Jerusalem, so that when he says he set his face to Jerusalem, it isn't that there was a journey. He started out, he commissions he commissions those 70 people. It's a, it becomes a grander affair in, in uh, his life uh, and, and in the ministry of Jesus as he's going to Jerusalem. But he set his face means that he set his face to do what he came to do ultimately for the Lord, for God the Father. And then in the middle of this, probably near the front of this, the last 30 or last six months of his life, last six months of his life, it's, it says that, that uh, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test and ask the question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a pretty good question. It's a question I wish that some people, people would come and ask you and me so we could directly get in, get into the answer to that, to that uh, question. It was asked by a lawyer. The lawyer was not like a doctor of jurisprudence that we see today arguing in the courts and raising questions. He was more like a PhD uh, of Old Testament studies, uh, uh, looking at and knowing all the Old Testament and the traditions that go on, on there 
And per, I, it, we are not told why he stood up to challenge Jesus, but he did, and he stood up to put him to the test. And I think it's a bit of irony that he raises the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's addressing it to the very person to whom he's looking, the one of whom the prologue in John says, in him is life. And the life was the light of men. He's looking at the very one who said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So he says this, and what he's basically saying is, what one thing must I do, and we're assuming this what from the law must I do to inherit eternal life? And so in response, Jesus asks him a question. He's a lawyer. What does it say in the law? How do you read it? And so the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. So he already knows the answer. And it's the right answer. It's the correct answer. Jesus responds, You've answered correctly. Do this and live. Period. Now, I want to pause to talk about this particular law uh, that is before us here before we get into the, the Good Samaritan. Some may be concerned here because why didn't Jesus say, believe in me? Believe in the Father, believe in me. After all, John in his gospel at the very end of the gospel says, these things are written in order that you may know that he, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And Jesus himself said in John 17, uh, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Why didn't he just say, believe in me? But, on the, on, but rather what he said was, you have, you have stated correctly, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Do this and you shall live. But this is the problem, isn't it? This is the problem of which Jesus is the solution. Notice the degree of love required. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now I think I've repeated this once before uh, here before you, but remember R.C. Sproul, beloved R.C. Sproul, who uh, went to be with the Lord this past year. And it's very difficult to remember some of, the, some of the ways in which he expresses things and so on. I can remember watching him personally deal with this particular passage. Or perhaps it wasn't this passage, but it was one having to do with this great commandment. And he begins by saying, Who has ever for an hour or for even a minute or even for a second or even for a millisecond kept this commandment to love the God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And then he turns around and he says what would be the most heinous sin of all? Would it be adultery? Would it be Murder? Uh, would it uh, be embezzlement, kidnapping, stealing? 
But if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your might, then the greatest sin would be not to do so. And he goes on to say that we live in a constant state of failing to keep the most basic and important commandment of all, loving God. And then we have to turn to the Lord. We have to turn to the Lord Jesus. And we have to confess, along with the psalmist, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Or we listen to Paul, the Apostle Paul, that is, where he says, Therefore no man is justified by the works of the law, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. When we think of loving God with all our heart, all our soul, we realize our sin in that particular matter. And that's why Paul also informs us that the law was given not to save us, but to point us to Christ who alone could save us. Wouldn't it be wonderful, however, if we as a congregation and we as people could love the Lord God with all our heart? We know that sin will not allow us to be able to do that. But what if we, we did it with most of our heart and most of our soul and most of our strength or even some of our heart, some of our soul, some of our strength? What an impact would that be? Not only on one another, but also on the world around us that we seek to reach out to and, and serve. But returning to the lawyer now, Lawyer wanted to test Jesus. He ends up feeling like something went terribly wrong uh, with his attempt to test Jesus. So the lawyer asks a, a second question in verse 29. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Usually when we listen to that, we, we see the words that say, wishing to justify himself. And then what it, the question is, who is my neighbor? We sort of smile at that. We think, well, that's, you know, he's trying to, trying to uh, not look silly when he's saying that. I think we ought to consider this in a different way. Actually, I think we need to consider this very seriously as a serious question and as a question that reflects us as well. A very impertinent question, and we ought to be glad that he gave it because we see how Jesus answered it, and we, sh and we should be raising the question ourselves. They knew, this lawyer knew, that this was a major commandment, and he also knew that he couldn't keep it, that he didn't love others, others as, he, as he'd loved himself. How could he love so many others? He was, he was a Jew and he lived and living there in, in Israel, Israel had been overrun by Roman legions and there were Roman soldiers virtually everywhere they went. He was, they, the land was overrun by, by pagans and by Gentiles. They were coming in. For example, you may not have under, known this, but in Galilee, in this Sea of Galilee, where you would have thought uh, that the Jews were in the vast majority. 
actually three-fourths of the shore of the Sea of Galilee uh, was, was uh, occupied and run either by Roman soldiers or by secular Jews and Gentiles. Only the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee had, had Jewish Jews in it, Jews that were orthodox in their, in the, their approach and where you would maybe find some zealots or others that would be trying to, de to defend their faith. That's just in Galilee alone. So they were overrun by these people, and, they, and you have the secularism, you have the foreign invasion of people, you have prejudice of those people, you have the persecution of, of, of the Jews, and they knew that they couldn't love everybody. They couldn't especially love Samaritans. Ever since their return from the exile, the Samaritans had showed hostility toward them. The Samaritans had tried to keep them from building a temple. The Samaritans tried to keep them from building a wall. The Samaritans uh, were very hostile in their way they dealt with them. They were not like the Israel of old. They were not the Israel of old. They had compromised their faith. They had intermarried with, with the pagans. They had built their own temple. They just were not to be loved. There was a real hatred between them. And so, for all the reasons, and I would suggest in here reasons that we may also have, political, social, racial, and other reasons, they couldn't keep this commandment as stated unless they narrowed it to a definition of neighbor as being Jews. If they said, love your neighbor as yourself, you're saying, love Jews as yourself. Perhaps they could keep it. So the lawyer asked, is asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers by telling a story to him and then raising another question to him. But first, the story. And before we begin the story, I want to say that this is a parable. It's not an allegory. We don't treat it like an allegory and try to have metaphors and all that with man and Jerusalem and Jericho. It's a parable, and there's one main point that's trying to be stated by this parable once it is done. And, it, and the story begins this way. A certain man was going down to Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. The story begins by focusing on this certain man. It doesn't tell us much about the man, and I think purposely so. It's any man. A certain man going down, and they beat him and stripped him and left him half dead. And then the focus of the story shifts from the man to the people passing by. And by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, these were not just any Jews. These were the ones who were supposed to be godly. These were the ones who were supposed to be Jewish and carrying out the law of God. These were the ones that led the people in worship. The priests sac making sacrifices in order to enable people uh, to come into a right relationship with God and the Levites serving the 
the priests and the people and whatever they can to, to fulfill that worship. But when both of them saw, came by and saw that certain man, they passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him when he saw him. He felt compassion, love for that man. And notice how he showed his love. He came to him. He didn't pass by on the other side. He focused on him. And he bandaged up his wounds. He gave him personal care. And pouring oil and wine on them. In other words, the oil would have been soothing. The wine would have perhaps acted like an antiseptic to bring relief from the pain. And it says he was pouring oil and wine, not considering the expense involved for himself, only caring for the man. And he put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, took care of him. He took precious time out of his journey, wherever he was going, and gave him personal care. He took, took the bother to do this. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Talk about generous. Two denarii would be two days wages for an average wage earner there at that time. And all this for a complete stranger whom he did not pass by. Talk about an example of loving your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus gets to the end of this story, this parable. And in response to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, he asks a counter question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. He didn't want to say the Samaritan. <laughs> he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, I cannot speak for you, but I can speak for myself. And I find this command of Jesus, this great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, very disconcerting. I am 76 years old. And I believe as I look back on my life, I have fallen very, very, very short of this great commandment. I find it easy to love those whom I love. But there are a lot of people out there that I don't necessarily love. And I think you know what I mean. As we look around the world and we see what's happening around us from a political standpoint, from, the, from looking on our computer and bringing up the Drudge Report or, or looking at the way people treat each other, the way in which they tweet each other, all of this type of thing, there's a lot of hatred in the world 
And quite often we're caught up in that hatred. But I want you to think about them. This parable has several clues as to how we are to define our neighbor. First, do you see the difference between the two questions? The question the lawyer raised and the question, the counter question that Jesus posed. Do you see the difference? The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' counter question is, who do you think was being a neighbor? The lawyer is asking, who out there is my neighbor? And Jesus is asking, are you being a neighbor to the person out there? The lawyer is asking, who should be the object of my love? Jesus is asking, are you loving the person, the neighbor, as yourself? So Peter, Jesus is sh shifting the focus from the people out there to the person in here. To the person in here who needs to be loving his neighbor as oneself. Now the second clue is this. By describing the one who was a neighbor as a Samaritan, Jesus was, in effect, erasing any religious, ethnic, social, racial, cultural, political, whatever, divisive influences for, in our judgment of who is a neighbor, of being neighborly. No one is excluded in this command. It is universal in this sense. And this is where it gets difficult for many of us. Because of what we see happening around us with people of different beliefs and backgrounds and worldviews. And they're not just in New York City or Chicago or San Francisco or LA. They're actually in our neighborhoods. They're moving next to us. They are bringing their views and their beliefs with them. And yet, we are called upon by our Lord Jesus to love our neighbors as ourselves. Which brings up a third point, which is usually not mentioned in this regard, a point that comes from the root meaning of the word neighbor in Greek. And the root meaning of the word neighbor in Greek is near, near, one who is near. Well, who is near us? Either as individual families or as a church as a whole. I think practically speaking for individual families, the one who is near us is the one next door or the one across the street, the one nearby. Before I lived in my brother, in my son John's house, Cam and I had a house, and on my right-hand side was a young lady 
divorced with a young child and a dog named Churchill. <laughs> On my left-hand side was an elderly man, older than I, if you can imagine. <laughs> and I was there when his wife died, there beside him. He's still living there. Across the street was a man who was an alumnus of the University of Oklahoma, and he made it known. God forgive him. And down the street was a Muslim family, and when they heard, when they understood that Cam and I had lived in Israel for a year, they were from Haifa, they knew little English, and they came up to us for help. But even in all of that, I don't believe that I did anything in comparison to what this Good Samaritan did. Nor did I effectively or positively introduce the gospel to them only in one occasion. My distinct impression, I, I forgot. It, it, this is a church. This is God's people. Where, is our, where are our neighbors? Where are those who are near us? Out there, out here, back here. They come from all backgrounds. All backgrounds. And there are none exempt from being our neighbor. My distinct impression is, based on my own personal history, is that often we don't even know the names of the next-door neighbors, let alone know our concerns, the concerns or, for them or love them. And we also treat our church as a retreat center where we can come and be with people whom we really love, which we do. In this regard, I want, I want us to note that in New Testament times, you'll be interested to know that the Jews had their own buildings where they could go and be together. They were called synagogues. They were all over the Roman world, all over the Mediterranean world. And not only all over the Mediterranean world, the, the Jews lived together, separate from the rest. When you go to, if you were living in that day, going to Rome, you would be in Rome and you would look across the Tiber River and there would be a whole area filled only with Jews. If you went to Alexandria, there were five sectors in that city, uh, in Egypt, two of which were filled with Jews. If you look for Christians, they would be in house churches. And the house churches just happened to be next to other houses. And it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the reason why the house, why the church in Rome grew so rapidly that by A.D. 64, when Nero went and killed all the Christians, both Jew and not all the Christians, but many Christians, said the, the person that reported it was Tacitus, and he said that he, he slaughtered multitudinous, great numbers of Christians, that it was because the Christians were in house churches in the communities around Rome.
They were loving their neighbors as themselves. They were sharing the gospel with them. Have I told you, did I tell you the last time I preached? I may have, forgive me if I have. There are three commandments. There are three great commandments. Commandment, you believe me? <laughs> Commandment number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your might. Notice that this commandment is difficult to keep. Commandment number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Note, this commandment too is also difficult to keep. Commandment number three, Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That also is difficult to keep. That you are to love one another as I, Christ, have loved you. Now, isn't that interesting? The one commandment, the first commandment I mentioned, uh, was a commandment to love God with all your heart. It has, it's a worship mandate. The second commandment, or let's go to the third, to love one another as I love, as you love yourself. No. To, to love one another as I have loved you, says Christ. That's a fellowship mandate, to love one another. But the commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself seems to be a mission mandate. And God is giving us a mission by saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which brings us to the fourth and final point that we find in this parable. And that is, well, what would that love look like? And the parable gives us two clues. First is simply the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But secondly, remember the parable, how the Samaritan saw him felt compassion, came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast, brought him to an end and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. And the Lord Jesus said, go and do likewise. Let us bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, how weak we are. How strong is your love. We know, Father, your great commandments, all three of them. And yet, how weak we are to be able to respond. We pray for a special presence of your Holy Spirit, Father, in the lives not only of us as individuals, but also in the lives of, of our whole congregation, that you would enable us not only to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not only to love uh, one another as our Lord Jesus Christ loved us, but also to love 
our neighbors as ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.